Christmas to all of you. I'm excited that we are in part four of the Advent series. Today we're talking about love. It's the, the fourth Sunday of Advent, and we talk about love. We talk about God is love. We talk about Jesus is love. We talk about Jesus in the manger is the essence of love. But if we're really honest, we talk about Christmas. A lot of us think most about gifts. We think about presents. We think about what am I going to buy for somebody else, and we think about what is maybe somebody else going to buy me, and we have that awkwardness of do I buy that person a gift because then they're going to feel maybe obligated to buy me one, so you know you have presents in the car just in case somebody gives you a gift, and then, oh, I got something for you, and you run to the car and go get You know that feeling of the awkwardness of gifts. Sometimes Christmas seems like it'd be a whole lot easier if we got rid of gifts, but then what would kids do? I mean, if you've been around my sermons for a while, you know that I loved Christmas when I was a kid, and I loved the Sears catalog when I was a kid. There's nothing better than being a kid and getting that Sears catalog, and you younger people, maybe you do it online, but you know, you get that catalog, and you go through there, and you're like, this is what I want. This is what I hope I'm going to get, and you kind of do the whole thing of figuring out what's the priority on the list, what's second on the list. You don't want to look too greedy for your parents, so you don't want to pick up something too extravagant. So you'd kind of try to figure out, you know, what would your parents buy you? But anyways, your kid, that was fun and that was exciting to dream of what would your Christmas be? What would your ultimate Christmas be? Kind of imagine the perfect Christmas morning of getting the six things that you all wanted. But I think all of you know from childhood experience that some mornings you wake up on Christmas and what's under that tree is not what you expected. You're like, wait a minute, you got me that? I don't even like that. And then you got that burden to figure out, like, what am I going to do now? I got to look a little bit grateful for my parents or my grandma. I can't look like a total jerk and be like, I don't want that. So you kind of lie a little bit through your teeth like, "Eh, thank you. So we all deal with that problem. I think everyone you know what that's like, trying to pretend you like a gift that you get, but you really don't. But that's not your biggest problem when you're a little kid on Christmas morning. Your biggest problem is you're starting to doubt the relationship that you have with your parents or your grandparents or your caregiver. You're thinking, can't you read? Or you're thinking, man, I told you so many times what I wanted. Or you think, come on, you guys should know me better enough to know what I would like and dislike. You got me that? So you start to kind of doubt the relationship that you have with your parents or you doubt the relationship you have with your caregiver. Despite all your valiant efforts, you didn't get what you wanted. I think you guys know what this feeling is of doubt and uncertainty on Christmas morning. See, I think those feelings of doubt and uncertainty when you're a little kid and you're disappointed by Christmas is kind of preparation for what adult life looks like when you get disappointed with God sometimes. Because there's times in your relationship with God, you look at your life and you're like, this is what you gave me? Or you look at the situation in your life and you're like, how did I end up with this? Or you sit there and say, God, I I requested something different. You heard me pray. You heard my request, but yet, this is what you gave me. It's really easy to feel big feelings of doubt and uncertainty with your relationship with God. It's easy to look at God at times and think, do you not understand me at all? 
because I really don't like the situation that I'm in right now. And we doubt. At Christmas, you can deal with a lot of doubt. But what is doubt? Let's understand doubt a little bit more. First of all, doubt is an emotion. And I think most of us have probably experienced maybe once or twice, probably in the last week or two. We all experience doubt. The dictionary would describe doubt as simply a feeling of uncertainty mixed with a little fear and anxiety. So doubt can just simply be a little bit of uncertainty mixed with a little bit of anxiety. I think we've all felt that way. Feeling a little anxious right now. Feeling a little bit uncertain. So when we experience doubt in our relationship with God, we all start to wonder, number one, what's going on with my relationship with God right now? You kind of get a little curious about that. The second thing you start to wonder when you doubt is you wonder, what really is the truth? What is the absolute truth I'm looking for? And also sometimes when you doubt, you begin to wonder, what does God really want from me? And then doubt often causes us to say, what do I need to do to get what I really want? See, this Christmas message today, I want to talk about doubt and love. Two words that we don't put together at Christmas. Last week I said the two words we should have on a Christmas ornament are the word grief and joy. Because those words often go well together. And at Christmas, the words doubt and love go together well. Because once again, it's often to the degree you've experienced doubt is often to the degree that you can experience love. Oftentimes, in order to experience love, we have to go through a season of that uncertainty, of that fear, or that anxiety, or not really sure what is happening. But I think way too often in our church culture, we often think that doubt's a bad word. We often think if you're experiencing doubt about your relationship with God, you shouldn't do that and you should be quiet. Just keep your mouth shut. I think we're often conditioned to believe that if we come to God with questions or doubts, that we shouldn't do it. So we get kind of good at suppressing our ideas or feelings. However, I don't think doubt is that bad of a thing. We all experience it. And I think doubt at times can be extremely helpful. I think sometimes doubt is actually a gift that God gives us. I mean, think about it for a minute. If you never experienced doubt, you would buy every single thing that you see on an infomercial. There would not be a frying pan none of you would own if you didn't experience a little doubt. Or face cream. I would, right? I would just be buying it all day long. But you kind of have a little doubt in your mind going, what's really true? Is that really what it's claiming to be? See, so often doubt makes us ask the really hard questions. Doubt often makes us say, you know what, I want to find a solution. A lot of times doubt can unearth the things that are really bothering us in our life. But doubt can often make us ask the really hard questions. I think it's possible to be full of faith and doubt at the same time. You can be full of faith in God, full of faith in Jesus, full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and at times your anxiety is high, times your fear is high, and times you're questioning. That's also, I think, the time that the Holy Spirit's working with you to lead you into all truth. 
Doubt can be a good thing. So we see that doubt and love, they go together. See, when a person doubts, I think there's often two questions that you really want answered. Usually one of the questions is, does God really love me? And second, does God really have a plan for my life? Does he really have a strategic plan for my life? Those are two questions I think every single one of us has to have an answer to. I think if you don't have an answer to those two questions, it can actually be more dangerous for your life if you don't find answers. See, the Bible tells us that God loves us unconditionally. But if that's not really settled in your heart, if you think that God still loves you conditionally based on something you have to do, that's going to be a hard life to have. See, often when we think God loves me conditionally, we're going to think that God's love for me is based on my purity or it's based on my ability. It's easy for people to think that God loves me based on my ability or my purity. And when we think that, we end up living a life, well, of performance. We think we need to perform our way into the presence of God. But that's not the way it is. If you were at least 10 years old in the early 1980s, you probably watched something on TV along with 750 million other people in the world. Anybody know what I'm talking about in 1981? In 1981, Prince Charles married Lady Diana, and the entire world watched. The entire world was just mesmerized by this royal family in England. It was kind of exciting because Prince Charles, he might be the next king of England, and if he's not the next king of England, then definitely one of his sons or one of his daughters would be the next king or queen. So the entire world's watching. We're all kind of fascinated with this whole king and queen structure in England. But what was very fascinating about this whole situation is how Princess Diana had to be vetted. Not any old woman off the streets could marry Prince Charles. There was two tests that she had to go through. There's probably many more. But the two popular tests that you heard of, they had to test her purity and they had to test her ability. If she failed in any of those two areas, she could not marry the king, the next king. The first thing that doctors had to do was they had to examine her purity. They had to determine, had she been intimate with another man? If she had been, she's not going to be marrying Charles. Second thing, they had to test her ability. Based on what doctors could determine, would she be able to bear children someday? And also, not just have a kid, they did a lot of genetic studies, they tried to determine, would she actually bring forth healthy children? So the whole world watched to see, would Diana pass the test of purity and ability? And the big question of the day was, what if she didn't pass those tests? Would Charles still marry her? Would Charles marry her if she'd been with another man? Or would Charles marry her if it came back and said, you know what, she's probably not going to be able to have kids someday? The whole world kind of watched. We all kind of wondered, what was the most important part of their marriage? Was it their love for each other? Or was it her purity or her ability? See, to be honest, that's a question a lot of us wrestle with with our relationship with God. 
We think, God, do you love me just because you really are that nice? That you really love me unconditionally? Or is your love for me really based on purity or my ability? I'm going to answer that question by looking at the genealogy of Jesus. Now, often we look at the genealogy of Jesus and you don't find, plan to find a whole lot of answers. The genealogies, those are the parts of the Bible you skip. Like, who wants to read through the 56 different generations that Jesus came from? Usually we kind of skip over those parts. But I think there's a lot of good information in the genealogies. Notice I didn't have Lori read those today because it does get a little bit long. A lot of people wonder, why is a genealogy in there? Now, first of all, you're really smart. Theologians and experts are going to tell you the genealogy of Jesus is in the Bible to prove that Jesus is actually who he said he was. The genealogies also support the biblical prophecies from the Old Testament. When you read the genealogies of Jesus, you quickly figure out those prophecies in the Old Testament, they're all true. Jesus would be born from the tribe of Judah. Judah would be a descendant of Abraham. He would be a descendant of David. But what the Bible said about Jesus is very true, but there is another reason why the genealogy of Jesus is there. The genealogy of Jesus is there to prove to you and I that Jesus loves you without condition. The genealogy is there to prove that Jesus loves you simply because he is a good and a faithful God. See, now, when usually when we think about Jesus and his genealogy, we think Jesus would be born from this amazing line of perfect people. We kind of think he'd be like Prince Charles, that he would not have a bunch of crazies in the closet. He kind of think Jesus would come from a line of purity, a line of people with strong ability. You think Jesus would come from a line of people that don't have a bunch of skeletons in their closet. Mm -mm. Not Jesus. Jesus has family members that were thieves, idolaters, murderers, you name it. That's pretty much in Jesus' family tree. Now, the truth is, for you and I, most people, when you talk about family tree and you talk about people you're related to, you skip those people in your family tree. <laughs> you usually don't highlight the crazy uncle. Mm -mm, not scripture. They kind of put it all front. Hey, hey, don't forget Jacob. Don't forget Solomon. Don't forget David. You got to remember them. A lot of us try to ignore the crazy parts of our family because the truth is, we all know that families, generationally, hereditary, things are passed down in family lines. Sometimes things like sickness, like high blood pressure, cholesterol, that can just be genetic. But sometimes behavioral things can be genetic as well. And sometimes we like to pretend, no, nope, don't come from a family that deals with that. I think we actually assume that Jesus or the Bible would like skip some of the people in Jesus' genealogy. Like, let's not mention them. Because after all, King Herod, the king of the day, he actually had his genealogy destroyed. He didn't want people, once he became king, he did not want people to know the lineage he came from. He did not want people to know some of the people he's related to. He didn't want anybody comparing him to the people in the past. He wanted to stand on his own. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't cover up the dysfunctional family that he came from. Instead, the Bible really goes to the, it works hard to make sure that you see all the dysfunction in this family line. Now, you look at Matthew. 
In Matthew's gospel, he even includes five women in his genealogy. Four women that have pretty tainted past. Now, culturally, at the time, you weren't expected to include women in the genealogy, but Matthew does it. Why does Matthew do it? Well, he wants to show the whole world that one of them seduced her father-in-law. Another one was a prostitute. Another one came from a family line that practiced a lot of incest. And one of the women that he mentioned, well, she had an affair with another man. That all could have been skipped in the genealogy, but they put it in there. It's all in there. Why'd they do that? See, the Bible wants you to see that the love that God has for you is not based on ability. It's not based on a purity. Instead, the love that God has for you is simply based on the fact that he is love and he wants to love people. The genealogy of Jesus shows us that Jesus came because people need him. The genealogy shows us that Jesus didn't come because he needed us, but it shows the family line he came from that people needed him. So often when we get around people that have a tainted past, we like to step away because they don't want, we don't want them to influence us. But what Jesus does is he steps into that family and says, I'm going to influence you. That's the love that Jesus has for us. He says, I'm going to step into whatever situation I can because I need to influence you. See, there's three main things I want to point out to you that we see in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, one of the first things you might say, Jack, this is a little obvious, and that is that Jesus' love is not determined by gender. Well, some of you might say, well, that's, you know, I, I kind of know that. But 2,000 years ago, that was big news. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was walking on the earth, people had almost no respect for women. Women, well, well, if they could produce a child or they could cook a meal, well, then you keep them around for that. But we're not even going to educate women. That was a culture in Jesus' day. And suddenly Jesus comes, and in Galatians 3, verse 28, Paul says it this way, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's slave nor free. There's no male or female, for you're all one in Christ. Suddenly Jesus comes with this, me this, this message around his birth and saying that there's no difference between male and female, that you are all one in Christ. That's radical news. See, so often when we look at the Scripture, when some people look at the Scripture, they think that, well, Jesus is nice and everything, but he came to put a lot of restrictions on people. No. From the very beginning, Jesus was pulling restrictions off from people. From the very beginning, what Jesus was doing is he's saying that men and women are equal, and he began to change the culture. That's pretty radical what Jesus did. It took our country until 1920 to realize that women could vote. It took them almost 2,000 years to figure out the book of Galatians, that it was actually true. And see, that's the love that Jesus shows. It's not based on gender. The second thing that Jesus shows us is that his love is not based on ethnicity. Ethnicity. <laughs> Did I say it right back? <laughs> Why did I put a synonym in there? Can't say that either. 
See, this verse shows us in Galatians, it says there's neither Jew nor Gentile. That's such a beautiful thing in Scripture that Jesus didn't come for just one people group or for just one gender, for one race, that Jesus came for everybody. See, oftentimes people get confused and they think, but Jack, you know, the Israelites, that's Jesus' chosen nation. The Jews were his chosen people. But in Jesus' genealogy, he included Gentiles. He included the women because they were Gentiles. See, the beautiful part of the story of God's chosen people, people were never chosen by God just because they're chosen, they're special, we're going to put them over here. People were always chosen by God so that they could influence the rest of the world, so other people would be chosen as well. That's what it means to be chosen by God, is that simply He's called us to minister to the rest of the world. And you see that so beautifully that all through the Old Testament, God would say, I'm going to bless the Israelites so the rest of the world can see how good of a God I am, and they're going to want to join in with the Israelites. See, that's what we're all called to do. We're all called to be God's chosen people that share his message to the rest of the world. And the beautiful thing, part three of what we see in the genealogy, is God's love is not determined by your past behavior good or bad or indifferent. I love how the book of Hebrews says, it says Jesus is not ashamed or, in, or embarrassed to introduce us as brothers and sisters. Let's be honest, in our genealogy, sometimes we're a little bit like, <laughs> I don't want to admit to that one. But Jesus comes in and says, I'm not embarrassed. I'll call you brother. I'll call you sister. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you're doing right now. I want to call you my brother and my sister. That's the definition of love. It doesn't matter. See, Jesus' love for us is always determined by our need for his love. And if you need his love, He's there to give it to you. So it, hopefully that became clear to you that Jesus loves us by looking at his family tree. So then what is God's plan for your life? Does God really have a plan for your life? See, his plan for your life is pretty simple. His plan for your life is to be with you. That's what Advent's all about, God with us. That's why we celebrate Christmas, because God wants to be with us. And that's God's plan for your life, is to be with us. Now, what I'm going to say next might surprise you a little bit. See, God's plan to be with us can actually bring us a lot of uncertainty. God's plan to be with us can actually bring us a lot of doubt. Probably wondering, how's that going to bring us doubt? So you remember earlier, Lori read the scripture for us when it talks about when the angel went to Mary. In verse 28, it says, Gabriel appeared to Mary and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. And then the next verse says, Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. That's an interesting couple of verses. 
See, the angel didn't even tell Mary yet about the whole Jesus part. The angel didn't even say, you're going to have a son, you're a virgin, and all that. He didn't even tell her that. All the angel did was he came to her and said, hey, God's with you. And suddenly she's confused and disturbed. Suddenly she's confused and troubled. Why? Why would you be so troubled when all the angel said to you was, God's with you? See, I used to think that Mary was troubled because suddenly an angel came in the room and she got spooked a little bit. I mean, that makes sense. You know, if you're emptying the dishwasher and you turn around, there's an angel, you probably would jump a little bit. But that's not why Mary was troubled. The text is pretty clear. Mary was troubled because the angel said to her, God is with you. Why is that upsetting her so much? Why would that bother her? See, Mary has a different perspective on the phrase, God is with you. See, Mary, she was a pretty good student of the Old Testament. And when Mary heard the phrase, the Lord is with you, she's quickly thinking, that's the same thing that God said to Moses. When he said to Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. When Mary heard the phrase, God is with you, she's thinking that's the exact same thing God said to Joshua when he said, you're going to lead the people into the promised land. When Mary heard the phrase, God is with you, she's thinking that's the exact same thing he said to Gideon when he said, you're going to take your teeny-weeny little army and you're going to go up against the Midianites. Mary's thinking that's the exact same thing you said to David. That's the exact same thing that you said to the prophets. And now you're saying that to me. And Mary knew that suddenly she's standing in the same row with Moses and Joshua and Gideon and David and the prophets. And now she's standing there and God's saying, I'll be with you. Mary knew at that moment that God was calling her to do something. Way beyond her ability. She knew what God was calling her to do at that point was going to stretch her. She knew what God was saying to her was going to bring her into conflict. She knew it wasn't going to be easy. If God's opening up a conversation with you, Starting it by saying, I'm going to be with you. Ooh, that means, that means some conflict's going to happen. You're going to go up against some adversity. Mary knew that what God was going to say next was going to be hard. And it was going to be challenging. And it was going to be difficult. That's why Mary was troubled. That's why the, it says Mary was trying to figure out what could this mean? What could it mean? See, what Mary was called to do was beautiful, but yet she knew it was going to involve conflict. See, each one of us has been called just like Mary. 
Each one of us has been called to have God with us. And the very fact that God is with you is going to bring conflict in your life because we all have an enemy. We all have an adversary that doesn't like the fact that God is with you. We have an enemy that doesn't like the fact that God is with you because he wants you to expand the kingdom of God. So anytime God is with you, you're going to have conflict with an enemy. Sometimes the hard things that are happening in your life have nothing to do with your choices. They have to deal with the fact that you have an enemy that's trying to block you and trying to stop you and trying to get you not to do the things that God has for you. Mary was in a very delicate situation at that point. God hadn't even said to her what he's called her to do yet, and she's already thinking, oh boy, what's going to happen next? Because the truth is we all want to avoid conflict. Very few people wake up in the morning and say, hey, I'd like to have a fight today. I would like to have a little conflict today. We kind of try to avoid it. Mary's probably negotiating her head, okay, I'll do what you're calling me to do. Could we like do it without conflict? <laughs> no, you're going to be a virgin. And you're going to have a child. That, that's a little conflict right there. People are going to look at it and think, that doesn't add up. So what did Mary do? See, the scripture tells us, it says, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Other translations say, Mary considered in her mind what sort of a greeting it would be. See that word consider in the Greek? It's a word that sounds a lot like dialogue. It's where we get the word dialogue. See, even before the Lord said to Mary, you're going to have a son, Mary started to dialogue in her head with God. She started to have a conversation with God. When she was trying to figure out what this means, she didn't run and just say, okay, I'm going to be all by myself here. At least, no, she started dialoguing with God. What does this mean? What do you have for me? I'm feeling some doubt. I'm feeling fearful. I'm feeling anxious. See, what Mary did is she dialogued about that with God. She didn't ignore her doubt. She didn't ignore her fear. She didn't get stoic and say, I'll just say whatever he tells me to do. No, she dialogued with God. And that's the same invitation every one of us has here. To dialogue with God means you talk and he talks. He talks back to encourage you, to comfort you, to strengthen you to give you stability so you can say, yes. That's what God wants to do with each of us when we experience doubt. He wants us to get to the place like Mary was in Luke 1, verse 38, where it says, Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you've said about me come true. And then the angel left her. What a beautiful response. May everything you've said about me come true. That's the ultimate act of surrender. Is when you say to God, all right, you want to be with me? I'm a little anxious what this means, but I'm all in. May everything you've said about me come true. See, that's what God wants to do for us. 
That's what God wants us to give to him this Christmas, is that willingness to say, I'm all in. I'm all in whatever you have for me. See, the beautiful thing about the story with Mary, it starts out by saying Mary found favor with God. See, every one of us here, all of you online, you found favor with God. That's why you're here today. That's why you have a story of salvation. Or that's why you might be curious about Jesus. Because you found favor with God. And God wants to include you with his chosen people. So you can reach out to other people. That you can be part of the plan that God has for your life. That's the beautiful part of this Christmas story is that God wants to be with all of us. And he wants to give us peace. He wants to give us hope. He wants to give us joy. And he wants to give us love. Because God knows we're going to experience conflict in our life. The Bible doesn't say he's going to take away all conflict. But it does tell us that Jesus overcame any conflict that we could experience. So Jesus' antidote is not to remove all your conflict, but it's to give you more love and more peace and more joy and more hope than any of the conflict that you have. So we're always staying ahead of any conflict in our life because we have love and we have joy and we have peace and we have faith. That's the gift of Christmas that we can live above any situation or circumstance that we might experience. Because God says, I will always give you more than you need, or more than you can ask for, or more than you can hope for. So may each of you here and each of you online, may you experience the true joy this season, and the true love, and the true faith, and the true hope. Let me pray. Well, God, I thank you for today. And God, I thank you that you want to be with us. God, that is comforting. And oftentimes, Lord, that can make us be like Mary, where we're going to wrestle. God, help us to be a people that dialogue with you. God, I even pray, Lord, as we close out the service, Lord, that you would dialogue with us as we worship you. Lord, as we sing these next few songs, God, I pray... <clears throat> that your Holy Spirit would dialogue with each person here. And for those that are at home that will not experience our, um, our worship and the service, God, would you dialogue with them at home as well, that you would speak to them. God, I, I desire that we all hear your voice today and we all hear your instructions today. So God, would you speak through this music? Would you speak to our hearts and would you stir in our spirits? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.